This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is from Pentecost Sunday, the second of the three great feasts. It was a rough year in my life. It was a year of transition, and among the things that made it not such a great time for me was a job that I was currently working that was not the greatest job I'd ever have or ever would have. Uh, I was a waiter at a retirement community, which means that I had all of the stress of meeting people's needs and demands and urgency, and yet also the monotony and the being on your feet all day of a normal waiter, but without the major bonus of tips. Because this was where they lived, they ate every meal in the dining hall, so they were instructed not to tip us. So we got no tips. So low pay, but all the stress of being a waiter. And it was in this time I was on the phone with a friend named Phil, and he was asking me, how's it going? I said, well, not great. He said, how's your job? Do you like it? I said, Phil, this is not a job that people like. This is a job that people do. And he paused for a second, and he was in seminary at the time. He said, you know, Brett, I'm not so sure. I bet St. Francis would have loved that job. He only would have probably not liked the fact that he got paid for it. It's like, okay, fine, St. Francis. And I was driving to work one day when the ontological, metaphysical significance of the job title which I held finally sank in for me. I'm a waiter. I'm a waiter. It started growing in its significance. I'm a waiter. I am one who waits. I am now waiting. I'm waiting. I'm a waiter. And that encouraged my heart. Um, As Christians, we are those who wait. In the story of Pentecost, we love the story because it's very exciting. Rushing wind and flames of fire and all these exciting things, speaking in other languages. But there's a part to this story that we don't really see in our text today, but it is very important. It's the part that comes right before it. Jesus ascended to heaven. We celebrated that last week. And 10 days between his ascension In the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples were told to wait. And even as Jesus ascended, two angels appeared to the disciples and said, Why are you staring into the sky? Don't you know that the one who ascended will come back in the same way that you saw him go? And so even though in one way their waiting was over on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, the Lord who said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He fulfilled that promise. He came at Pentecost. But in another way, the waiting that began on the day of ascension is still the waiting that all of us are in. We're waiting for the Lord to return, our Messiah to come back to earth. So as Christians, we are awaiting people. Now, there are other times that we wait alongside of waiting for the Lord to return, times when we have to make a decision. It's a major life decision. Maybe there's a job opportunity, but it would involve significant change for you. Uh, It could be about a relationship, and you're in the season of waiting, and I'd kind of like to hear from the Lord, what do I do about this? We also find ourselves in a time of waiting when we're in a trial. We're walking through that valley, and it's deep, and it's dark, and it's long, and we're, we're not sure that we yet see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's when we're definitely in a season of waiting. Or sometimes it's not that uh, specific. We we don't know exactly what it is, but we just feel like we're waiting for something, something to happen, something to change, life to get better somehow. I was talking to Catherine, Stuart's wife, 
uh, about going to Brazil. She's from Brazil, and she was saying every time she goes back, it takes her a while to adjust to their culture of, of waiting because most cultures around the world are used to waiting. Americans, we don't like to wait, right? So she said one day she was in Brazil waiting for some official government document, or, and the wait was all day long. And she was in a line with lots of other people, but they knew what to do. They know how to wait in Brazil. They brought card tables. They were playing games. They brought their musical instruments. They were grilling out. They were having a good time. And as Americans, we, that is so foreign to us. We do not like to wait. We consider a two-hour uh, wait at the DMV a pretty raw deal, right? Which is why all of our licensed pictures are this big grouchy frown on our face. Which is all right, because if you get pulled over, that's probably what you're going to look like anyway. So it works. We do not like to wait. But as Christians, we must, not, we must not only learn to accept that waiting is a part of life, we have to get beyond that cliche and understand that, in fact, waiting is essential to the Christian life. It's crucial. It's critical. As Christians, we have to wait on the Lord, even though it's not always easy. And in fact, it sometimes feels downright impossible. But you know, waiting is possible when there's a promise. Patience is possible when there's a promise. Perseverance is possible when there's a promise. We can wait on the Lord when we have from the Lord a promise to hold on to that will guide us through that season of waiting. So today I want to talk a little bit about what is this waiting on the Lord. Let's describe that a little bit. And then also, what is the promise that whatever our circumstances are, what is the promise that will carry us through any and all seasons of waiting? So the idea of waiting on the Lord, it's a biblical idea. You see that phrase pop up in the scriptures. Uh, one example of that would be Psalm 27. The end of the psalm, the psalmist says, and I know this, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he concludes his poem with an encouragement, an invitation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Which, you got to love that phrase because it means let your heart take heart. Let your heart take heart and wait for the Lord. Or Isaiah 40, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. These are promises for us to hold on to. This waiting is unlike other kinds of waiting. It's an active waiting, maybe a little bit like the Brazilians who are playing games while they wait. You're doing something while you wait on the Lord. It's not just simply waiting around for waiting's sake. You're waiting while you're seeking. Waiting has an active component. So earlier in that same psalm, Psalm 27, listen for the words that have to do with seeking. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. O Lord, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face do I seek. So teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. We may not like waiting, but the biblical idea of waiting is a sweet thing because it can involve, and it should involve, resting in the Lord, resting in his presence, being filled with his presence, even as we wait for him to act. 
But there's also in this active component to waiting, there's an eagerness and there's an earnestness to our waiting. It's what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And truly what happens when we're in this season of waiting, if we let it happen, if we submit ourselves to the Lord, is we allow the longings and the desires and the things that we're hoping for and waiting for, we allow our desires and longings to be shifted and shaped and fashioned and adjusted by the Lord. That adjustment happens only in the season of waiting when we're taught what to wait for and what things to truly desire. So back to my job waiting tables at the retirement community. Uh, I was in that job for a while and at one point felt like the Lord say, Brett, you need to learn to be content. See, I was thinking, no, I need a new job. I was applying for other jobs and interviewing. That, that's what I need. And he's saying, no, no, actually more important than a new job, you, you need to learn to be content. And I'll share this with you with this huge caveat. This is not prescriptive. I'm not, if you are underemployed or you are not employed, I'm not saying that this is what will, it will be for you to get you out of the situation. But I did feel for me in that, in that season that I actually would not get a new job until I learned to be content in that place. Again, not prescriptive. I'm not saying that that's the Lord's word for you. But I did feel like for me in that time, that was what I needed to learn. And what was happening is in that season of waiting, my heart was being shifted and my desires and what I felt was important was changed until at last I could say, all right, I guess I'm a little bit more like St. Francis than I thought because now I enjoy going to work. Now there are things that I have to look forward to. And I can honestly say when I ended that job, I was content there. So waiting on the Lord is active because we're seeking the kingdom. We're seeking to be formed in the Lord's own heart. Um, but waiting is also passive. There's a way in which when we're waiting on the Lord, we're in a posture of receiving. Because this is part of the virtue of waiting on the Lord is it makes us humble. It reminds us that we are completely dependent on him. It reminds us of what Jesus meant when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yet, if you abide in me, or that's another way of saying, if you wait on me, you will bear much fruit. So those seasons of waiting on the Lord teach us to abide in Christ. Waiting on the Lord forms us into the kind of people that God can use for his service. Think about that metaphor, that image in, in the scriptures of the potter with the clay, working that clay on the wheel. The wheel's going round and round, and the clay in the potter's hands is slowly taking shape in his hands. And what does the clay do? It just sits there and tries as best as it can to be soft, right? So that is our part, to be soft, to be moldable, but truly we are clay in the potter's hands. And waiting on the Lord teaches us humility because we realize, yeah, I, I can't push this forward. I can't move this. I'm not in control. I have to wait on the Lord to act. More than anything, waiting on the Lord is a posture of the heart, an inner attitude that once, we, once we're there, it affects the way we pray. No longer it's this like white-knuckle desperation prayers, but there's, there's a sense of, of peace. What Paul says, the peace that passes understanding. We can pray, can we ask, we can wait for the things that we really do need, but we can do that with a sense of assurance and trust and peace. It changes how we deal with other people. It changes how we do with frustrating situations and crises moments. It changes who we are. 
Here's uh, what I might call a, a litany of the waiting heart. The waiting heart is patient. The waiting heart is content. The waiting heart trusts. The waiting heart is open, open to the Lord and open to others, able to be interrupted. The waiting heart is steadfast. The waiting heart is confident, right? Like the psalmist, I know that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The waiting heart has peace. The waiting heart is hopeful. The waiting heart serves. and We could go on, but that sounds like a pretty good list. If that's what's happening to me as I'm waiting on the Lord, I'll say yes to that. I like those things. I want that to be who I am. So as difficult as it is, waiting on the Lord is a good and essential and critical thing, component to the Christian life. But remember, waiting is possible when there's a promise. Think about David, the king of Israel, greatest king of Israel. He was anointed probably around age 15, 16 maybe, we don't really know, but he was anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the king of Israel. In front of his brothers, in front of his dad, I'm sure it was a pretty climactic moment of his youth. And yet, from the time of his anointing to the time of his taking up the rule and the scepter of the kingdom, a lot happened in those 12 to 15 years between. There were battles, there were victories, there were losses. He was betrayed, and ultimately, he spent most of that time on the run in the wilderness being hunted down by his own king and master, the present king Saul. And you got to wonder, what kept him going through all of that time? I bet a lot of it had to do with that promise, that anointing that he received as a younger man, that he would someday be the king of Israel. So when we receive a promise, it gives us the ability to wait. So what is the, the promise? What is the promise that will get us through any season of waiting, any circumstance of waiting? This is extremely simple, but it's this, that we are waiting for the Lord. We're not just waiting for nothing. We're waiting for the Lord. There's something that we're waiting for. The disciples are waiting in Pentecost because Jesus told them, I am sending the Holy Spirit on you. You will be clothed with power from on high. So wait until that happens. And it gave them the ability to say, well, we're not leaving the upper room until that happens. And when the wind is rushing around and the flames are on their head, they're looking around saying, okay, I think this is what he's talking about. Yeah, I think this is it. But they had something to wait for. What's really interesting, though, is that it wasn't really a what so much as a who. Right before Jesus ascended, the disciples said, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for a what, and he responds with a who. I'm going to send you the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you God himself. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus comes to his disciples in the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening at Pentecost. We're waiting for the Lord. And the greatest promise that we could receive is the promise of himself, the gift of himself. As he said, I will abide in you. You will abide in me. This constitutes a new step 
in the relationship between God and humanity. Something new is taking place in this moment that had never happened before in the relationship between God and his people. At the end of the gospel reading, if you're paying attention, at the very end, Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send to you the spirit of truth whom you know and you will receive because he's been with you. But now he will be within you. And that slight change in the preposition makes all the difference in the world. Like the difference between lightning and lightning bug. All right? is the difference between with and within. Because up to this time, God had been present with his people. He had dwelt among them. He said, I'm traveling with you through the wilderness. One of the things he says most often throughout the scriptures is, I am with you. But this is the first time that he's now saying, I am within you. I'm in you. And why? Because Jesus wants us to carry out his ministry and his work. He wants us to be doing the same thing that he was doing when he walked this earth. Like the Eucharistic prayer that we pray during Lent, it says that we might live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose for us, he sent the Holy Spirit, his own first gift for those who believe, to complete his work in the world and to bring to fulfillment the sanctification of all. His own first gift, to bring to fulfillment the mission and the plan that Jesus started and now is being brought to completion through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a perfect story that illustrates this really well is our, gospel, or sorry, our Old Testament reading from last week. So you remember the story of Elisha and Elijah. It's hard. You've got to keep the name straight. Elijah. J comes before sh in the alphabet. So Elijah's first. Elisha follows him. All right. So the Jedi Knights, that's how I like to think of, of Elijah and Elisha. They're the Jedi Knight prophets. They're walking side by side. And Elisha is saying to Elijah, can I have your power? I want the power that you have. And Elijah says to him, you have asked a hard thing. But if you see me when you go, you will have it. And then the chariots of fire come in and they swoop down and they pick up Elijah and he ascends into heaven, which is why that's the reading for the ascension. He ascends, but as he goes, his robe falls. It's where we get the phrase, the mantle has passed to so-and-so, right? Mantle is just another word for cloak or covering. And in, in this story, the mantle is passing from Elijah. Elisha goes, he picks up the cloak and with it, the authority of Elijah. And he goes back to the river. He smacks the river. And the same miracle that Elijah did moments before, now Elisha is doing the water parts. And then when he finds the company of prophets, do you know what they say to him? They look upon him and they say, the spirit of Elijah rests upon you. That's a perfect illustration for what's happening in Ascension and Pentecost. Christ is ascended, but his mantle, his authority, his spirit falls upon the church. And it should be that the world then looks at the church and says, the spirit of Jesus rests upon you. When we look at you, we see Jesus. So this waiting on the Lord leads to walking in the spirit's power. And when we do that, we're fulfilling the mission that God gave to us. So it's worth asking ourselves if we are waiting for something, are we chiefly waiting for a what? Or are we chiefly waiting for the who? 
Are we chiefly looking for the resolution to this conundrum or the change of our circumstances that will make life better for us or the decision to be made? Are we chiefly waiting for those things? Or do we understand that under and over and around all of these, the chief thing that we ought to be waiting for is the Lord himself? Does it put us in that posture of waiting for him? It's a good question just to ask ourselves and just be reminded because it is pretty easy to get caught up in the details and forget, wait a minute. I'm waiting for the Lord, first and foremost. So then I want to say a few practical things on how how do we wait on the Lord. And for sure, more could be said than what I'm going to say, but here are a few thoughts for practically how do we do this. I think perhaps the first step in waiting on the Lord is accepting our limitations. Chief among these would be the limitation that we are not God. And I do wonder how many of our frustrations and our, how much of our anger um, at life or, or even at God or our bitterness in general has to do with the fact that we're frustrated that people don't treat us like we're God and God doesn't act like we're God. And we think deep down secretly there's some secret part of us that thinks we should be God. And when we accept the limitation that, oh yeah, I'm not God, we can begin to enter into the waiting on the Lord. And along with that, we accept the limitations that we don't control time. We can't speed things up. We can't slow things down. We don't know the future. And we can't control others. And indeed, we can't really control our own lives and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And instead of resisting that, when we come to that place of accepting, oh, I'm not in control, then we can begin to wait upon the Lord. So accepting our limitations, we cannot receive His power until we've let go of all our own power and our need for power, our desire for power over our lives, a need for control. We've just got to let go, let go, let go. Notice I didn't say let it go, and I didn't start singing. Okay. <laughs> so after we accept our limitations, here's something else that I think we need to do. Because as Americans, we're really impatient people. We need to repent of impatience and ask the Lord to heal us of our impatience and ask him to give us his patience. I mean, I don't think I'm offending anybody or surprising anybody when I say Americans are really bad at at being patient. We're not patient people. And yet what I find with my own children, yes, I know I told a story last week that was very touching and moving about me dancing with my son, and it was beautiful. There's another side to my fathering, and it's that I lose my patience. I get angry sometimes. And what I've realized is a lot of time when I'm frustrated at my children, I'm angry at them because they're acting like a bunch of four-year-olds. And they are four, two of them anyway. And the problem is not so much with them. The problem is that it's me. I'm impatient and I'm expecting things of them that are unrealistic. So the other day when it takes us 30 minutes to get out the door between getting clothes on and shoes, it's because they got to be the right shoes. That's why I'm telling Julie, if we only had one pair of shoes for these kids, this wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, anyway. then that was also how long it took us the day before and the day before that. And I'm thinking, when are they going to learn to get out the door in less than 30 minutes? And God's probably thinking, when are you going to learn that it takes 30 minutes to get out the door? And honestly, how much of our frustrations, how much of our anger at others, at life, at God himself, how much of that anger and frustration is because of this? We are impatient. We're the ones who are impatient. 
And what would change for us if we became a more patient people? How much of those frustrations would mysteriously clear up all on their own? I wonder. So along with accepting our limitations, we also have to repent of our impatience and ask God to heal us, to give us his own patience. So this morning, some of us need to come and simply humble ourselves before God and remember again, that's right, I'm not God. And I accept the limitations that I don't control time and I don't control others and I honestly don't really control much of my life. That might be how you need to respond this morning. Accept your limitations. It, it might be that you need to come, and probably all of us in some way need to repent of our impatience and ask for that healing. Lord, give me the patience that I don't have. So this week, when you are noticing anger or frustration or impatience boiling up in you, here's a really helpful prayer. It's a, a prayer that you can repeat with your, with your breathing because it's, it's simple and there's two parts to it. And this is a prayer that has helped me a lot grow in the virtue of patience when I have needed it the most. And it's this. Lord, I wait for you. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I wait for you. Come, Lord Jesus. And it reminds us that, yes, chiefly we're waiting for the Lord, and that also what we need and, and the true solution to our, our problems is when he comes into that moment, when he himself comes. So we wait for him. Lord, I wait for you. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray that prayer to grow in patience. Sorry, that sounds like I'm saying grow in patience. Grow in the virtue of patience. And finally, if you are in a season of waiting that's particularly heavy, the valley is especially deep and long and dark, then, then this may be for you a, a unique and special task that I would give to you to do this week. Find time this week to ask God for a promise. Or as we talked about, having a promise is sometimes what we need to get us through those dark valleys. And alongside of the general promise that the Lord himself gives himself to us, which is great, sometimes the Lord will give a specific promise. So an example of that, Julie teaches at a music school that is undergoing a pretty major transition. The 40-year owner and, and business um, leader of this school is retiring, and there was a question for a while, who's going to take, who's going to buy the school, who's going to run this thing? And along with that, of course, there's a lot of questions around job security and income and all of that. And it was not clear for a while who's going to step forward. Will anybody? And in this moment, in this season, Julie got a word from the Lord that she felt like him saying, don't worry, so-and-so is going to buy the school. So don't worry, like don't be anxious, and also you don't have to buy the school. She's like, uh, he's going to buy the school. And she held that loosely. She didn't want to, you know, take that as an absolute firm promise from God. But at the same time, in her nervousness and anxiety, she went back to that. She said, I, I feel like that's from the Lord. I feel like he gave me a promise. He gave me a word. And that carried her through. And sure enough, that's what happened. This man stepped forward. He's buying the school all as well. Now, it might be that what you need is something specific like that. So take time. Listen, ask, just ask him, Lord, do you have a promise for me? But it also might be that the Lord doesn't have a specific something that he wants to say to you. It may be that what you need more than anything is, is the, that simple, basic promise from God that he is with you. Maybe that's all he wants to speak to you this week, to just say in your trial, I am with you. Or 
behold, I'm coming soon, or some other very basic promise of Scripture. But if you are in a place of unique trial and temptation or trial and waiting or whatever it might be, that's my encouragement to you. Ask the Lord for a promise. And then remember this, the waiting does not last forever. And we're waiting chiefly for someone, not something. And we know that ultimately all of our desires and all of our longings and, and yes, even the desires of the nations will be fulfilled on that day when Christ the Lord returns and makes all things new. So wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take heart and wait for the Lord. Yes, Lord, we wait for you and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.